This is Archive Atlanta, episode 85, Interracial Marriage. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. I know, I know, this is not about Inman Park, but this is why I never promise episodes in advance. So not only is the Inman Park research just a lot, but I'm also still determining whether I can get it all done in one episode or in two parts. I'm sorry if I disappointed anybody, but I was really sucked into this history of interracial marriages. And at first, I thought it was going to be a quick mini. So I have Inman Park open in one window. I have this little mini episode in my mind. I'm just going to bang it out real quick. And as I virtually turn the pages of 150-year-old newspapers, these tiny stories kept revealing themselves. So this week, we're going to talk about interracial marriages, once more commonly referred to as miscegenation or amalgamation of the races. While I always tried to focus on Atlanta, there were other stories from cities across the state, but also national events that really had an impact on the lives of Atlantans. These laws covered the commingling of any and all races, but the earliest enacted focused on unions between black and white, and that's probably going to be the main focus today. Laws policing interracial relationships date from colonial times, and they lasted all the way through the 1960s, and is actually considered one of the longest forms of legal discrimination in the United States. If it wasn't evident, the idea from this episode came from the 53rd anniversary of Loving Day, which just happened on June 12th, and it celebrates the Supreme Court decision in Loving versus the state of Virginia, where Richard and Mildred Loving brought their case against their home state in a time when 30 other states had anti-miscegenation laws on their books. And also, I am in an interracial marriage myself, so this history was really personal to me. And while this piece of my relationship does not come up every day, um, it also is there every day, if that makes any sense. It's definitely something that um, is apparent to everybody that meets us. um, So it's always presented to the world before we can present it to them. And there are some states and some cities that shall remain unnamed, (laughs) Alabama, uh, where we did not feel comfortable as a couple just walking around. So reading this history was really difficult at times. There was really terrible language. I mean, but this happens in a lot of the history that I research. And there's a lot of times I had to take a break or I was kind of yelling from the other room being like, oh my gosh, you have to read this. I can't believe it says this. Let's start the story at the beginning, which in this context is early colonial America. In the 1660s, Virginia and Maryland passed the first anti-miscegenation laws in the British colonies. And there's lots of academics that believe this was the first attempt at creating the idea of whiteness and then dividing enslaved people from white indentured servants. Um, There's a lot of history to unpack there. I've recommended this before, but there's a podcast called Seen on Radio, S-C. E-N-E, and they did a series on whiteness that explains uh, basically how race was created and then how it worked in uh, the early United States. When the U.S. was created in 1776, six out of 13 colonies enforced laws against interracial marriage. And it was not just the southern states. Views on slavery definitely didn't seem to have an effect on which states outlawed these unions, and there was definitely northern states in there. 
During the slave labor system, the idea that a black person could marry somebody white meant they were human and worthy of love, and it's really harder to justify owning a person without being able to dehumanize them. And of course, slave owners were also concerned that interracial marriage would allow people to marry their way out of bondage and challenge the legality of owning people. In 1865, the Georgia Constitutional Convention framed a new state constitution, that was right after the Civil War, and it would repeal secession, abolish slavery, and prohibit interracial marriage. For white Southerners, a post-war world with free black people meant a need to start legislating their lives and their movements in every possible way. Also during Reconstruction, it was the newly elected African-American legislators that fought to overturn among many other laws, miscegenation laws, with little success, sadly. Henry McNeil Turner was one who introduced bills to repeal the ban on interracial marriages, and he also tried to fight against sending prisoners to the chain gang. We don't have a lot of surviving newspaper archives from pre-Civil War period, but it was 1868 that the first time I found a mention of a meeting in Atlanta to discuss miscegenation. In 1869, Georgia's Supreme Court heard the case of Charlotte Scott. Charlotte was black. She was in a relationship with Leopold Daniels, a white Frenchman. Because they lived together, they were charged with adultery and fornication. And the question for the court was to determine whether a man and a woman could have their marriage recognized in a state where it was illegal. Judge Brown agrees that it was not possible, and he cites the state constitution, codes 1707, which prohibits marital relations between two races and declares them null and void. But Brown didn't really stop there. He had to add his own two cents, which were, and I quote, I do not hesitate to say that it was dictated by wise statementship. The amalgamation of the races is not only unnatural, but it's always productive of deplorable results. Our daily observation shows that the offspring of these unnatural connections are generally sickly and effeminate, and that they are inferior in physical development and strength to the full blood of either race. End quote. This was not a rare opinion. This was prevailing thought of the time. He was a judge, and I read much worse. Miscegenation laws like this were at times used by the white spouse to either get a divorce or an annulment really easily, uh, or essentially deem their marriage invalid if they didn't want to be in it anymore. Sadly, for white men with black or indigenous spouses, if they died before their wives, relatives made it almost impossible for them to receive inheritances or marital property. For the couples that wanted to get married in Atlanta in this period, you had to get creative. In 1870, a black man named William Henry went to the registrar's office to get a marriage license. What I found interesting was that at this time, women did not have to be present. So he goes ahead, he lists his name, and he lists his future wife as black. They show up to Payne's Chapel in Atlanta. They hand the certificate over to Reverend Dunlop, and he notes that both the man and the woman have POC listed after their names, person of color. The woman wears a really thick veil, and so he notices it, and I mean, thinks maybe it's a little strange, but he doesn't really think much about it. Only after performing the marriage ceremony did the reverend's associate realize that the woman was indeed white. Dunlop freaks out. He refuses to sign their marriage certificate. He assures them that their union is not legal. They're probably going to hell. Even crazier, though, is that he felt the need to publicly clear his name in the newspaper, like explaining his side of the story, lest anyone think that he knowingly married an interracial couple. 
He would go on to say that the couple should be harshly punished for their crime. And then he even had probably a friend uh, write in like another editorial to vouch for him and vouch for his character. In 1871 Atlanta, Nancy Moore, a white woman, was arrested at her mother's house, convicted of miscegenation, and sentenced. And her choices were to pay an astronomical $500 fine or spend six months on the chain gang. Either way, her two children had been removed from her care. Mary, who was eight, and Charles, who was four, were given to Judge Pittman to rehome. Five years later, there is another story of a woman living near Oakland Cemetery who was arrested for having sex with a black man as well. In the same year, 1871, the first proposed constitutional amendment was brought forth by a representative from Missouri who worried that the new 14th Amendment would lead to the legalization of miscegenation. Ironically, he was right, or he could predict the future, because it was the 14th Amendment that was cited in the Loving case. And here's another interesting thing that I learned. In order to get around the 14th Amendment defense in these early days, authorities would arrest both parties in miscegenation cases. So I found it weird when I was reading this. I'm like, that's kind of, you know, why are they arresting the white spouse? Because historically, they would only arrest the black person in every other situation. But by arresting both a white and black party, um, they could raise their hands in innocence, claiming they were not solely discriminating against African Americans specifically. In 1890, Taylor and Carrie Eccles lived together on Hilliard Street. She was a white woman and he was a black man. It turns out Taylor wasn't exactly the faithful type, so Carrie attempts to have him arrested for infidelity. When the police arrive and realize they're an interracial couple, they turn and arrest them both for miscegenation. In 1889, Rose Ward and Charles Tutty were married in Washington, D.C. She was a formerly enslaved black woman, and he was an Englishman who owned considerable property. After the wedding, they returned to live in their home of Savannah, and it horrified white neighbors to see a black woman come to town each day, dressed in the highest of society clothes, and buying things. How dare she? There were articles in the paper accusing Rose of, you know, asking 15000 before she agreed to marry Charles, but generally just denouncing her character in any way possible. Soon, they were both arrested and both charged with fornication. Their case came before a judge of the U.S. Circuit Court, the state of Georgia, listed as a defendant. Mr. Frazier, who is the attorney for the state of Georgia, won't even call them Charles and Rose Tutty. He insisted on Rose being called by her maiden name. And honestly, this is a step up because most of the time in these stories, if a black woman was involved, they wouldn't even print her name. Frazier goes to argue that people can't just leave the state, get married somewhere else, and expect to return and be valid. The attorney for the plaintiffs argued that interracial marriage was legal in the District of Columbia, and Georgia can't invalidate a contract that is legal elsewhere. Judge Spear decided to remove the case back to the Superior Court of Liberty County, Georgia, where they lived, and affirmed the constitutionality of Georgia's law. Charles Tuddy ended up pleading to the British consulate who contacted the vice consul living in Savannah for some help. The Tuddy secured an African-American lawyer from D.C. to come to Savannah and represent them, and this is actually the first time that Liberty County saw a black attorney in their courtrooms, and it made front-page news. His goal is to take the case to the Supreme Court, but sadly, it never happened. The coverage in the paper dies off after this. They let the couple continue to live together in Savannah with some kind of toleration from the city. 
And I use the word toleration very loosely because three years later, Rose is arrested for refusing to give up $3,000 in railroad bonds that she had in her possession that her husband gave her. So I don't know, you don't know if she was carrying them somewhere or he had gifted them to her, but the local prosecutor is quoted as saying, as far as Tuddy is concerned, I have no sympathy for him or with any white man who marries a Negro. When he turns over property to her, he deserves to lose it, end quote. Even sadder, in 1904, Charles died, and his will states that he wants his entire estate, totaled at $33,000, which is a lot of money that time, would go to his daughter, Rosa. His three surviving sisters felt very differently, and they filed caveats against the will. The idea that a white man would leave his fortune to a black wife or a black child was so incredulous that people believed he could not possibly have been of sound mind. The turn of the 20th century brings us to the era of Thomas Dixon author and playwright, an insane racist and racial purist. He wrote The Klansman in 1905, which quickly became an immensely popular play performed across the country. And if you know your history, that is the play that the film Birth of a Nation was based on. The Klansman premiered in Atlanta in 1905, and Dixon was here for the festivities because his wife's family lived in Griffin. He's quoted in the Constitution, talking about his life in New York, how he's been living there for 16 years, and how he commonly sees big black men walking down Broadway with white women in their arms. It's described as a passionate plea for racial purity against the dangers that threaten the existence of the white civilization. Basically, Dixon was horrified at the mixing of white and African blood. And he states, quote, the white man's burden at the time is to check the spread of miscegenation with all the awful consequences it entails, end quote. So this play was the first to attack this subject matter, and Dixon plays the lead role, and it's a story about a man duped to marry a woman who is one-sixteenth black, and, you know, nobody knows, and they find out at the end. It was shown in the Grand Theater in Atlanta in November. Another big nationwide event that happened in 1910 was the boxing match that I talked about in episode 50. Jack Johnson, a black man, became heavyweight champion of the world when he beat a white Canadian man in 1908. By 1910, they have found white boxer James Jeffries, who they took out of retirement, by the way, to fight Johnson for the belt. Instead, Jack Johnson beats Jeffries in front of 20,000 people. And that did not sit well with white Americans. Riots broke out across the United States, and it wasn't just about a black boxer beating a white one. Jack Johnson was flamboyant, he openly dated white women, and he did not quote-unquote stay in his place. He first married a white woman, Etta Daria, and after her death, he married another white woman, Lucille Cameron. It was this second marriage that pushed Georgia Senator Seaborn Roddenberry to introduce another proposed constitutional amendment banning interracial marriages. In 1912, Roddenberry pushed the most stringent of bills, hoping to make the marriages between white and anyone with one drop of black blood illegal. He says, quote, intermarriage between whites and blacks is repulsive and averse to every sentiment of pure American spirit, end quote. In his speech to Congress while introducing the bill, he wanted to let everybody know that the marriage of Jack Johnson was enslavement of white women and warned that a civil war would come if we did not make interracial marriages illegal. And then, when you think it can't get any worse, Birth of a Nation premieres in 1915. In that movie, a black soldier stalks a white woman through the woods, and he proposes marriage. The evil, radical Reconstructionists had legalized miscegenation after the war, and the poor girl decides to throw herself off a cliff rather than face the prospects of marrying a black man. 
Also, not shocking that this movie would propel the reformation of the KKK right on top of Stone Mountain, but that's another story. After World War I, returning American GIs that had gotten a glimpse of another way of life in Europe come back home and they start pushing for civil rights, including interracial marriage laws in the U.S. In 1928, a South Carolina senator tried to introduce another constitutional amendment criminalizing miscegenation between any race, as well as severe punishments for not only those that are trying to be married, but anybody who may marry them. So now let's step into the 1960s at the height of the civil rights movement. 1963 was a pivotal year. There was a march on Washington. It was the assassination of Medgar Evers, among many other events. In the college town of Athens, Georgia, a college couple secretly got married. But they weren't just any college students. The new bride, Charlene Hunter, was the first black woman to enroll in the University of Georgia and was chosen, along with Hamilton Holmes, to desegregate the school. She met her husband, Walter Stovall, at a coffee shop in Athens, and they were secretly married in another state before heading up to New York to live there to do some internships. So while they're in New York and they're expecting a baby, they release the news publicly, uh, and UGA and the state of Georgia basically just freaked the F out. <laughs> Attorney General Cook says it is, quote, unlawful for a white person to marry anyone except a white person, and the marriage is in violation of this law. It shall be void, end quote. UGA's statement is, quote, secret marriages are contrary to the University of Georgia regulations. Students guilty of such are subject to disciplinary action, and therefore neither shall return to the University of Georgia, end quote. So yes, they were basically kicked out of school. The two would continue to live their lives in New York City. Um, eventually, they divorced in the future, but they remained living there. Just months after this news, a black master sergeant in the U.S. Army wrote a letter to the mayor of Augusta. See, he lived in Germany with his white German wife and his four kids. And he gets a notice that he's being reassigned to Fort Gordon. He's just read the story of Charlene Hunter in the news, and so he's a little concerned about what's going to happen to his family when they all move to Georgia. The mayor never responds, so he writes a new letter to our favorite Attorney General Cook, who assures him that all laws in the state are enforced. He can't really predict whether his family will have to deal with abuse, assaults, or insults, and there are just too many variables, and that it, quote, depends on your neighbors and who you associate with, end quote. And that brings us to 1967, the year that the Supreme Court hears the case of Loving v. Virginia and rules that interracial marriages are legal in all 50 states. The first marriage license in Fulton County went to an army couple, a white man from New York and a black woman from Chicago. In the two years since the ruling, Fulton County reported issuing 23 marriage licenses to interracial couples, although they did expect that before the ruling, many more were granted by couples lying and just pretending to be the same race. And all of that sounds like a happy ending, right? But this is Georgia. And Atlanta is a progressive bubble in a sea of red. What you don't realize is that the state of Georgia never actually took the old miscegenation law off the book. So even though it's not legally enforceable in a court of law, it's still there. When a couple in Clark County walk in to apply for a marriage license, the clerk refuses, citing this law, and it takes the ACLU involvement to get this sorted out. Finally, in 1979... Yes, I said 1979, House Bill 200 was signed into law, which removed the antiquated anti-miscegenation law. And the happy ending comes now, right? Not exactly. See, I did this episode because I want people to understand that these beliefs that have been codified into law for centuries 
do not just disappear when a law goes away. It's not like people go, oh good, okay, we're not like this anymore, great, I love the intermixing of the races, yay. Instead, what happens is that in 2019, a city council member in North Georgia says publicly to the newspaper that he opposes interracial marriage because he's a Christian. That the idea, quote, makes my blood boil because that's just not the way a Christian is supposed to live. And that a lesson from the church is to, quote, keep your races pure, end quote. So while we all fight to change systemic and institutional racism and white supremacy, we also have to look at the ideas and the beliefs and the things that we were taught. So there you have it, the story of interracial marriage in Atlanta and the state of Georgia. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to leave a rating or a review wherever you listen and share it with someone else. I also have a Patreon page linked in the show notes where you can get bonus mini episodes for as little as $1 a month. There are two or three new ones I've uploaded recently. And finally, I promise, for real this time, that next week will be an episode about Inman Park. I hope you have all have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.